Hey, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scarborough, and together with Bruce, we have written 35 cookbooks, including one that is about to be published in a couple of weeks, The Instant Air Fryer Bible, a air fryer book written specifically for instant brand air fryers, the Vortex and Omni models, although really honestly, you could use any air fryer because 350 degrees Fahrenheit is 350 degrees Fahrenheit, no matter how you cut it. But it is specifically written for the Vortex and Omni models of air fryers from instant brands. But we want to talk about in this podcast, a photo shoot. We have just come out of a photo shoot for the book that we are publishing in 2023. So mm. next year, this was an overwhelming photo shoot. And we want to kind of give you a behind the scenes look at that photo shoot. We're going to talk about our one minute cooking tip, as we always do on this podcast. Bruce has an interview with the founder of a Stockholm distillery that makes some of the best gin I have ever tasted. And yes, I realize those are fighting words. And finally, as always, we'll end with what's making us happy in food this week. So let's talk about this photo shoot. We shot more than 700 photos for this new book, which has 125 recipes. So what that meant is every step in every recipe got photographed. It's called the Look and Cook Air Fryer Bible. And again, that's not out till 2023. It's not even turned into the publisher yet. So here's why the shoot went so well. Mark and I planned very carefully. And when we were planning for the shoot, we had to do something that Mark is so good at. And that is telling a story. Oh, right? Because every series of shots for each recipe had to tell a story. Well, yes, they did. And Bruce and I wrote a book a while back called Cooking Know How, a book that won an award at the Paris Book Show and all this kind of stuff, which is really nice. But Cooking Know How, and it had mm, three, maybe four. Uh, photographs per recipe and there were photographs of the finished dishes and then an intermediary step photographs but not a lot of them in this book that is coming out in 2023 which again hasn't even been turned into the publisher yet every single step of every single recipe is photographed and it is a daunting task and what I know needs to happen and this is what Bruce is talking about is that a reader just needs to be able to look at those photographs, look at the ingredient list, so they know exactly how many eggs to beat in a bowl. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Look at the ingredient list and look at those photographs and be able to produce the recipe. Sure, there is a traditional written-out method for the recipe, but you need to be able to basically story it, to use the fancy word in the industry. You need to be able to story it from the photographs for each recipe. So we sat down in my office and we went through every single recipe that we shot and basically storyboarded them. It was yeah. kind of crazy. But what's really difficult is when you're shooting 20 sandwiches and 30 pieces of fried chicken or six <laughs> different kinds of burgers, how yeah. do you shoot a storyline of six photos that tells you how to make it without them all looking the same. Yeah. And that is what the real challenge was. And of course, part of how we did that is by swapping out the air fryers that we use in each shot. I mean, I had 
20 different air fryers we could pick from, right. uh, cooling racks, rather than everything coming off onto the same cooling rack. Right. I had, you know, many, many cooling racks and lots of different tongs and lots of different and dish towels. I should say that this was shot in our own kitchen. I mean, we're not on a set anywhere. So we are literally in our kitchen shooting on a butcher block in our kitchen. And, you know, the kitchen had to be kept clean, of course, the, yep. through the whole thing, which is hard. Think about you're cooking. You're cooking, let's say, uh, 14, 15 dishes a day, sometimes multiple times, and you have to keep the kitchen scrupulously clean because the kitchen's being shot, too. So it's a it's an overarching big problem <laughs> all around. Now, we're used to these kind of things with photo shoots, and one of the things that we're used to with photo shoots, which is wild, is we are used to the shopping before photo shoots. And let me tell you something about Bruce and Mark. Here's two things about us and every book that we've ever written. One, all the food is fully edible. We do not do fake food under any circumstances. I saw a video the other day about somebody making gooey cheese and it was all about putting glue with melted Velveeta or something. And, and they it, use slime now too. You yeah, buy slime. And, and you know with us when you pick up and they nailed the pizza to the board and then they picked up this slice that had the glue painted around it so that it looks like you know cheese is pulling up and stringing up. To me it looks so fake I couldn't believe it. And we would never do that. That which means, and this is what's crazy about us, we are insane people, is we have done photo shoots for ice cream books with real ice cream and photo shoots for frozen drink books with real frozen drinks that could be drunk the minute they're done shooting. You know how fast a frozen drink starts to separate and melt? You know how fast ice cream starts to melt on set? That's just, it's an insane problem. On the first four days of the shoot, we shot 41 recipes. And those 41 <laughs> recipes required 40 pounds of chicken, 15 pounds of varied deli meats, 15 different loaves of breads, seven kinds of rolls. And again, we don't cheat. I, this is, uh, years ago, we wrote a book with a publisher and had Louisa Weiss as our editor. And Louisa Weiss is a spectacular writer in her own right, has written great books in her own right, and she was one of the best editors I've ever had. I loved working with her. But Louisa came up for the photo shoot, and she was part of our editor, was here uh, in our house. The photographer came, prop stylist came, all these people came, designer, book designer, and Louisa. And Louisa went shopping. She actually came and brought her credit card, which is really nice, and went shopping with us the day before the shoot. So she was, as the publisher, was paying for all the food rather than our paying for it and then billing her. She just brought the corporate credit card and did the, sh the, the shopping. So what I remember is standing in the grocery store and Bruce was buying dried thyme for a recipe. And she said, why do we have to buy this? Like, no one is ever going to see that there is dried thyme in this stew. And we both looked at her with just this look like, are you kidding? We are honestly going to make this recipe in all of its steps. So it's going to actually be made and not faked. Yeah. And even though no one will ever see that dried time, for some reason to the two of us, it's super important that it's in the stew because we are shooting the actual dish itself. And we also hate being wasteful. And there's so much food that we made during that shoot and during this previous shoot yep. that we like to eat it during lunch and dinners of those days. I give it to my 
my neighbors, and I want the food to be real. I want it to be edible. I don't want to be throwing away 41 recipes worth of food just because it's half garbage. <laughs> my favorite moment was we were shooting a, a, a book a while back, uh, several years ago, called The what turbo blender revolution or something it was dessert the turbo uh, blender dessert dessert revolution revolution. making brownies and cakes in your vitamins but it included pancakes and so i I don't know how that's desserty but it, it doesn't matter the book did include pancakes and what I remember about it is that we made these oat pancakes in a turbo blender, you know, like a Vitamix, and we put raw oats in it and all this stuff, and we basically made a batter, which you can do. Just pour the wheat berries in with the raw oats, and suddenly you make flour in your Vitamix, and then you add the wet ingredients, you turn it back on, you make a batter, and then you've got your pancakes, right? So we made these oat pancakes, and Bruce made a platter of them, and of course he fried up bacon for the shot, too, at the same time. So there's this platter of oat pancakes and bacon. And the minute we struck, when we said, okay, that's it, the photographer has the right shot, what I remember is the photographer and the food stylist basically mowing through that plate of pancakes <laughs> and bacon, like just eating the thing down right on set. I couldn't even get it off set before they were eating it like crazy. So this insistence on real food, I think, is really important to the two of us. There's something about it that we know we could fake it. Listen, we could easily go out and buy Bisquick and make pancakes and say, oh, that's the pancakes from the book. But there's something about honesty with us. We feel like it has to be honest. It started actually with our first book, The Ultimate Ice Cream Book. And although that book doesn't have photographs inside of it, there is a beautiful shot of chocolate ice cream on the cover. And I went to that show. We didn't shoot that ourselves. That was in the old days. And we went to a studio in New York and a photographer shot it. And I remember the food stylist had dry ice and she had gallons and gallons of the chocolate ice cream that was mm-hmm. from the recipe in the book. Mm-hmm. And she made hundreds of scoops and put them on dry ice. And she was trying to make the most perfect ice cream scoop. And while I thought that was a little obsessive to make hundreds of them, I loved the idea that she was using real ice cream, that she was putting it on dry ice. She wasn't doing a, you know, food stylist trick of Crisco and flour and trying to make something fake. And ever since then, Mark and I insisted that everything that goes in our books and on the cover of our books... It's all Beatrice's fault. It's it's all Beatrice's fault. It's this food stylist. It's all her fault. She did this to us. Well, it just got us down this whole road where we felt everything really had to be real and had to be what it is that is the recipe. Now, I should say that over the years, things have changed a great deal. And when we photographed, for example, our book, Vegetarian Dinner Parties, that was nominated for James Beard Award, and it won an International Association of Culinary Professionals Award. We photographed Vegetarian Dinner Parties, uh, which is still probably my single favorite book we've ever written. When we did that book, the house was jammed. There was the photographer. The photographer had his assistant. There was a prop stylist, somebody who brings all the dishware, all the forks, all the napkins, all the tablecloths, all that stuff. The prop stylist had her assistant. So there's four people. The editor was here on the shoot. The book's designer was here. The art director was here on the shoot. Bruce and I were here and Bruce had two kitchen cleanup or two kitchen help. He had a sous chef 
and he had somebody to wash dishes. So our house, we don't live in a grand house, our house was jammed with people. Thank God they all stayed away in Airbnb kind of places. Um, but the, the, it was jammed with people. Over the years, particularly because of COVID, this has been cut back and back and back. And once we hit COVID, we published cookbooks during COVID, and they had to be photographed. And basically, it all got pared down to Bruce, me, and the photographer. And it was the three of us alone. And we would each quarantine, the photographer, Bruce and Mark, would all quarantine for a week, 10 days. I don't remember the rules. And then we would meet and shoot the book it was so different because it's so quiet. It's just the three of us. We work really well together. We've worked with the same photographer for what, 12 books? This 13? is, yeah, yeah. He just shot our 13th book. Okay. We've worked with, with Eric for forever and we work super simpatico together. It's like the three of us are almost one machine working. But it was so weird to not have all of these other people standing around us. So, how did we manage? Well, we still needed props. So, I was in charge of buying props. Yeah. And that was all online. I would go to different websites, everything, literally everything from Target and Macy's to Crate and Barrel and CB2 and to higher end stuff. And I would order hundreds and hundreds of plates and platters and glassware and UPS would deliver it to the house and grocery shopping during COVID, I would order it online and then yeah. just have them bring it out to the car. I remember that. I remember driving. We were shooting a book in during the pandemic and it was during the first part of the pandemic before there were even vaccines and you had ordered oh, God knows 50 bags of groceries yeah. for the shoot and we pulled up to the supermarket and pulled into the space and they they brought two people out with two or three carts of groceries and piled them into yeah. our Subaru and we drove off. I mean, now that we're totally vaccinated and we've you know even had our bivalent vaccines, it's easier. I can go to the store and right. I did all the shopping for this shoot myself, although it did take me four trips to a supermarket to get all of the groceries for these 700 shots. And then Eric, of course, doesn't really need an assistant. And if he does need some help, Mark helps him out and right. holds scrims and changes lights for him and does stuff like right. that. And Mark basically gets the shoots running. He makes sure that everything happens the way it should. Yeah, and I produce the shoot, which means I decide the order of the shots. And uh, basically what mostly production means is not only the order of shots, but I moderate between Bruce in the kitchen as the chef and the photographer. And so I try to figure out which one is behind or ahead of the other one and who needs to hold back. I tell Bruce, you know, Eric's not ready to shoot the next shot or he's not ready to shoot the next recipe or we need to give Eric's eye a rest. I, I do find that part of making a good photo shoot, and this has been since the beginning of our career, part of making a good photo shoot is keeping the photographer happy. Always and, keep your photographer happy. Oh, my happy. gosh. You have to keep your photographer happy, which means you have to feed her or him well. In <laughs> Eric's case, we have to drink him well. <laughs> we have to feed him or her well, depending on who the photographer is. And that's part of it. I mean, you want to make a convivial open 
accepting atmospheres so that everyone does their best work. And you want the photographer not to feel that she or he is under the gun, nor feel as if you're irritated at the photographer or it's a difficult working environment. I mean, they're being creative. So you have to set up an environment that allows them to be creative. Now, the publisher is involved in these shoots and they're invited to come, but they don't want to come. And so basically, for at least for the first day of a shoot, we are sending tons of photos to the editor, to the publisher to make sure they're okay with the direction right, the shoots are right, going and make right. sure that so remember we were on that shoot for when back when we were being now we're at little brown but we were being published by random house at one point and we were on a shoot for random house for one of our books and the art director insisted on being at the shoot but she wouldn't come to our house mm-hmm. we've shot almost every book since we moved here in 2006 at our house in the country in new england and she wouldn't come and so she was on this is presumed. It was just a FaceTime. Yeah, she was literally on a laptop on FaceTime, and she was working at her desk. So we basically had her face on this laptop, and most of the day she's not even paying attention no. to us, and we're not paying attention to her. But then occasionally we would interact, but she was there on this open laptop set so on a weird. stool in the kitchen. We set it on a high stool on the kitchen, and yeah, my favorite it was very moment, bizarre. Yeah, my favorite moment of that whole thing is we were doing a soup, and she had said, well, just have the soup in a tureen and then have bowls around it. So the tureen, the ladle, and the bowls are all there and spoons. And her only comment was, there are too many circles. <laughs> I see too many circles. That's such not a helpful comment. That's so not helpful at that point. So that's kind of how the shoots work. Basically, at this point, it involves three people. It involves Bruce Mark and our photographer, Eric Metzger. He's a fantastic photographer. Mm-hmm. Follow him on Instagram. He does beautiful shots. He has become a world-class cocktail photographer beyond Mm -hmm. the photographer for our books. And he does beautiful cocktail shots for Death & Co. and other really high-end, smart, fancy liquor brands and bars. You should check out Eric Metzger. He uh, does gorgeous work. And it's the three of us. We have a great time together. We eat too much. We, We photograph way too much. And we get the thing done. But it is a really intense experience. I'm sure Eric is pleased to leave here when he leaves. Oh, and I goodness. know that I am thrilled when Eric drives away because it has been an intense several days of shooting hundreds of shots. Before we get to our one-minute cooking tip, let me say that it would be great if you could subscribe to this podcast, if you could rate it, if you go to the Audible or the Amazon page, drop down, and you'll see a way to give a rating. You'll also see a little uh, box or icon or line that says write a review. If you click that, you can open it up and actually write a review of this podcast. That would be terrific. Thank you, though, even if you don't do that. Thank you for being a listener with us. We see the numbers. We see where people are listening to us. We can even see the states where people are listening to us. And it is so great to know that this podcast has now officially been downloaded in all 50 states of the United States. That is a beautiful thing to know. And we appreciate your being on the journey with us. Okay, up next, our one-minute cooking tip. Sharpen your knives. Those are the three words I want you to live by. Sharpen your knives. A home electric sharpener is great, but at least once a year, have it done by a professional. Yeah, and when you sharpen your knives, 
remember then that they are sharp <laughs> because you have gotten used to cutting with a dull knife and you have been used to be, I don't know, cutting your tomato by sticking the point of the paring knife into it first because the blade is not sharp. And so you've come used to working with dull knives. Remember now that they are super sharp. And but Bruce is right. Bruce takes his knives about once a year and drives them over to a guy in West Hartford, Connecticut, and gets them all sharpened over there. It's really important to keep them sharp. A sharp knife will help you cook faster. It'll slice things better. It won't mess up your food. You try and cut through food with a dull knife. You smush it rather than cut it. And a sharp knife will make your food look better. It'll make you cook faster. It'll cook better. But again, as Mark said, remember, they are sharp. And if you're used to the dull knife, like you're peeling a potato and you're used to the the blade of that dull paring knife hitting your thumb and not cutting you, it will cut you. So just be careful. Up next, Bruce's interview with the founder of a Stockholm gin distillery. I am so excited about this. We have mentioned this gin from Brennerai. I couldn't possibly pronounce the name in Swedish correctly. Brennerai, <laughs> she'll do it for us. Brennerai, we found this gin, their rhubarb gin oh several years ago i'm absolutely in love with their gins they are spectacular products so bruce's interview with the founder of one of stockholm's best distilleries wow this morning i am so happy to be speaking with anna wickner founder of stockholm's brennery yeah, that was good. Yeah. Anna started the company and they are the distillers of some of the best gin Mark and I have ever tasted. Welcome to Cooking with Bruce and Mark. Thank you so much. Thank you for um, making it possible for us to join you. So Anna, for decades and maybe most of the 20th century, gin, I think everyone considered a British drink. And what's your take on this sort of global gin renaissance? Oh, yeah, that's a big question. Uh, yeah, I mean, both me and Carl, my um, uh, my husband, uh, we started this distillery together. For, for a long time, gin has been our favorite uh, liquor when it comes to mixing cocktails, and we always loved gin and tonics. And so it was actually when we were living uh, in Vancouver in Canada uh, where we got the idea of starting this distillery. Uh, so uh, during that period, we were visiting a lot of distilleries on the west coast of the US. So that was actually where we discovered that gin can be so much. I mean, what gin is, is just a redistilled spirit with juniper berries and other botanicals. So, I mean, it's so wide, you can do whatever. You can go out in your garden picking something that grows just this day. You can pick apples, you can pick something in the woods. Um, so we fell in love with the idea of experimenting a lot. But our, like our, um, dry gin that was the first uh, product that we released uh, we were experimenting so much before we decided what were actually going to become our main gin our star among our gins uh, and it actually we got married the same year uh, that we were starting the distillery so the summer of 2016 we got married on an island in stockholm and it was in july so it was, it was like uh, elderflower season. And also on this island, it grows a lot of heather in the forest. Um, so we were like, yeah, maybe we can. <laughs> of course, we wanted to create a gin for this the wedding. Uh, so we tried to distill the heather. And we absolutely loved the character. It's like 
a little bit of honey, uh, woody, earthy. Uh, so we tried distilling that together with the elderflower and it turned out so well. So this actually turned out to be the start of our dry gin. And almost all of our gins contains both elderflower and uh, heather. So you can say that all our gins are inspired of our Nordic surroundings. Um, so for our dry gin, we have heather and elderflower and also um, rosemary uh, for the herby part. Are there any herbs or infusions that are off limits for gin? Uh, for gin, it has to come from uh, uh, botanicals, so it can't be like uh, meat. Or uh, it's been a lot of people that, oh, can you hang like a piece of bacon in the steel? Or what can you do? Uh, so it should be yeah, a botanical. So no, I, I mean, I mean, it has to be edible. You can't <laughs> put something that's not edible. But no, you can do whatever. So it just has to contain juniper berries. And it has the taste of the juniper berries. And then you can do almost whatever. It is amazing that you wanted to create a gin just for your wedding. <laughs> and then that became the basis for your company. Um, what did the journey look like in creating the distillery? We actually started the uh, company when we still were living in Vancouver. Because we are engineers, both of us. And we had like normal engineering jobs back in Sweden before we left. And... Uh, uh, Vancouver was such a creative city. I mean, a lot of people living in Vancouver doesn't live there because of the money, because of the career. They live there because they love the environment, the mountains, the ocean. Uh, so people did, I mean, they, for work, they did what they loved. They were roasting coffee or had that small leather shop or distilling something or ha having a brewery. I mean, we got super inspired of the, all the meeting places around these places. So it was like, did you have a distillery? You could, of course, visit the distillery, have a cocktail, talk about the uh, talk with the founders and stuff. Uh, so this was what we wanted to bring back home. And so we started the distillery over there because we didn't want to travel home back home and just realize that, no, it's easier to just continue where we were back in Sweden before we left. Uh, no, so then it took like a year to find a space where we could actually have the distillery uh, because we needed quite high ceiling height. We needed uh, to be able to uh, load things in and out from the distillery. We wanted to be quite central in the city. So after a year, uh, we moved in, in this space. Uh, and then, of course, it was uh, a lot of regulations and stuff. But I mean, if you just follow the regulations, it's, it's fine. And did you bring your equipment over from Vancouver or did you start fresh? Uh, no, so we didn't have any equipment in Vancouver. It was more that we started the company paper-wise and we actually also ordered the still when we were living in Vancouver. It was also half, an, half a year uh, delivery time of the still and we were like, oh, that's too much. We have to order it now so we have it in place when we get back home. Uh, but then it actually ended up waiting for us in Germany half a year before we had the space for it. Um, so we were lucky that our partner down there could actually keep it before we until we got the space. You talked about Heather as being such an influential flavor in your gin, but your gins all have something unexpected. Your flavor profiles are just not necessarily what everyone comes to expect, like even in your pink gin. How... Do these flavor profiles come about and what is your experimentation process look like? Uh, I would say maybe maybe because me or my husband, we don't come from the industry, but we haven't been working within um, the drink industry and we haven't uh, worked uh, within hospitality industry. 
Uh, so we didn't have any frames of what it should taste like or what it should be. And that's also a part of all our products that we, we don't read about the trend and then create something for it. We are more, it could be like the team in the brenneri. Maybe we sit down and have a coffee break and someone like, oh, I was out in the woods picking this. I, I, I tried to um, infuse it in, um, in ethanol and now it tastes like this. Shouldn't we do anything about uh, with this? And we're like, oh, yes, of course, we love this taste. We want to share it with other people. So it's a lot about the sharing to inviting people to our ideas. Uh, and like the pink gin, we wanted to create interesting summer gin, but we didn't want it to be like a liqueur or something too feminine. Or um, we still wanted it to be a really good gin. Like all our gins, we, we try to create um, gin that you can sip neat. You don't have to mix it with other stuff uh, to make it uh, good for drinking. Well, the pink gin with rhubarb and rose petals, I can say from experience, is best on its own. I mean, just I actually like it with a little ice. Um, but no, that I would not be pouring um, any fever tree <laughs> on top of that. I'm so happy to hear so. Yeah, so our experiment, uh, like the process is, yeah, it could be us just putting different stuff in the still and see what happened. And it could be like, like Röd, our uh, one, we have two aperitifs as well. We have Stockholm's aperitif Röd, meaning red, and Stockholm's aperitif Svart, meaning black. Uh, so Röd is based on rowan berries uh, and also lingon berries. It actually started with uh, us picking rowan berries, put that into ethanol, put it aside in a shelf and now we actually have a lab, but uh, those days we didn't have a lab. So it was just standing somewhere in the distillery. And we found it a couple of months later. And Kalle was like smelling it. What's this? I don't remember what this is. And he, he felt that like something he really wanted to create more from. And uh, yeah, that's where it started. Um, so it was just an old experiment that we found a couple of months later. And that turned into a really nice product after a while. In that product, in that road, you also have spices and herbs are you looking at an aperitif a bitter almost like in the world of campari i don't want to compare it to anything but it's yeah it's not as bitter as a campari we sometimes says it's like the nordic aperol uh, it doesn't taste like aperol at all either but it's a little bit bitter it's really fruity from the berries both the rowan berries and the lingon berries and it's also a little bit sweet but also a lot of our both our aperitifs uh, it's like half the amount of sugar than in a Campari or in an Aperol. As for them, as for the gins, we want to create the best possible product to drink as it on its own. So if you put Röd on ice, it's really nice to drink. If you want to put Röd in a cocktail, maybe you want to add sugar. But I mean, it's easier for you to add simple syrup in, into your cocktail than taking it away in your glass when you want to drink it on ice. Do you think that your entire line of drinks reflect Swedish taste and culture? Or are you really reaching a global palette? I wouldn't say that we're following like Swedish, the Swedish palette or so. But I mean, a lot of our products is, is containing like Swedish, very Swedish herbs. Uh, a lot of our um, products are based from a Swedish organic um, apple wine. So both the red and svart, the aperitifs are based on an apple wine. And that's something something we have a lot of here in Sweden as well. Uh, 
uh, and Svart, it's uh, based on uh, coffee as well. And I mean, coffee, we have a strong coffee culture here in Sweden. We love having fikas all the time. So it's influenced by that, of course, as well. The apple wine, is that something you think you might actually get into producing as yourself for the base or are you that is something you purchase? No, we, we purchase it. It's the same with our ethanol. We buy an organic Swedish ethanol. Uh, if we would create that ourselves, we would... We have still with not that high of a tower and if we would create a good base spirit ourselves we would be, we would have to um, distill it like many 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 times in our small stills and uh, yeah when it comes to gin distilleries almost no gin distilleries distill their own base spirit to be a london dry gin for example you can't distill your own base spirit so when you add your botanicals and your herbs do you distill once or more than once? Or is that batch to batch dependent? Uh, almost only once, yes. I mean, and that's more how you do gin. You don't you don't distill it a lot of, many times. You, you distill it once. And since we also have these, this little, small column, we have three plates in our column. So, I mean, the use of that also makes the taste like a smoother, rounder. In our still, it's a pot still, so you can put botanicals in the mash. Uh, and macerate it uh, to the next day. But we also have um, steam baskets. Uh, so we have baskets where we can put, if we have fresh uh, rose petals or other flower petals or um, fresh herbs, we put that in the steam baskets instead because then the temperature doesn't go as high and it doesn't have to be there for 24 hours. You put it there just before distilling and you put the steam uh, through it and you can taste the um, spirit coming out all the time. And then when you see that uh, it, be it starts to become off flavors or you think, oh, wow, this uh, herb is so potent. Uh, I don't want more of this taste. You can just flip it so you don't use the um, steam baskets anymore. So that's something we use a lot as well. Also in our aquavit with the dill flower. And then we also have some experimental product that we we since we have a small laboratory as well, so we can do really small batches of um, uh, flavors and we can add that later uh, after distilling. We don't do that with our standard product, but we do that with some fun products, some fun products we do with the small bars and stuff in the, in the city. I want to get back to what you're doing with some of these small products, but I'd love for you to tell me more about the Aquavit. I know Aquavit as its own thing, but you're sort of blending it together with gin and creating something of its own character what, what what's your aquavit really like uh, yes yeah, so our aquavit actually started um, with a collaborational gin uh, together with a bar here in stockholm agriculture or bar agriculture just a few blocks from our distillery they wanted to us to uh, distill a batch of gin with a lot of dill flour so we added a lot of dill flour in the gin baskets and uh, we got so surprised of that green fresh uh, taste we got out um, from the dill flower and it was an interesting product but it tasted too much of dill flower but after a while when we sat down in the distilling discussing this um, this product we were like we should still do something uh, from this taste that we found because the gin and the dill flower it was so good together we're like, yeah, but this almost uh, becomes a snaps, an aquavit. And we start reading about what's actually an aquavit and what's a gin. So gin is juniper berries and other botanicals. Aquavit is almost the same. It has a few botanicals that you have to have. But it's also 
wide in, in what you can do. So then we also were talking about, okay, so then Aquavit is almost a Nordic gin. And so we decided to do a gin Aquavit. So we have our like main gin botanicals, the heather and the elderflowers is also there, the juniper berries and the um, uh, angelica root, the coriander seed. And then we also added um, caraway, fennel seeds, and uh, this fresh um, dill flower. So tell me about some really interesting small batch uh, products you've been coming up with for local bars. Uh, yeah, we've, we've been um, distilling a lot of fun stuff. So we've been distilling um, mushrooms that was actually fried in butter before we distilled it. Uh, we've been distilling uh, a lot of different kind of pepper, the other day for a photographic museum here in town, uh, we distilled cucumber and seaweed. It turned out really, really good. Um, we have a small experiment in, from the lab that isn't a gin, where we've been distilling habanero, so a chili, a really strong chili fruit, and also um, pineapple for a certain cocktail for a certain bar in the city. Amazing work that you are doing at Stockholm Brennery. I hope that everyone in the U.S. will look around for distilled spirits from Stockholm Brennery. They are amazing. Anna, thank you for your time this morning. Yes, thank you so much. See you around. Okay, that was a lot of fun. And, of course, something that just uh, I, I can't let go of, as I already told you. So our final segment is what's making us happy in food this week. So you go first. Your homemade Worcestershire. Oh. We had steaks last night, and I poured your Worcestershire on them when they mm -hmm. came off the grill, and mm -hmm. that was the best. If you want to know about this, you can make your own Worcestershire sauce. If you want to know about this, you should check out the cooking channel, Cooking with Bruce and Mark, on YouTube, and you can find me making Worcestershire sauce there. I do the whole recipe uh, in a, well, what is it, about a six, seven-minute video, mm -hmm. something like that, and uh, I should warn you that this thing needs to ripen in your fridge for a couple months. So if you would like to give Worcestershire as a Christmas gift, it's a fabulous thing. Buy yourself some real nice cruets, make Worcestershire, give it round. People will really think they've come into a new foodie world, but you got to get going now because the stuff's got to ripen. What's making you happy in food this week? Well, we are finishing up apple season here in New England. We are actually kind of at the back end of it. But I have to say that living in a place that grows great apples like New England, uh, I remember when I was in grad school in Wisconsin, Wisconsin also grew great apples. Living in places that grow great apples makes me unfit for apples all the rest of the year mm -hmm. long. I don't even want to look at an apple in January or May. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I'll buy one if it's required for a recipe, but really, honestly, really good, crisp, crunchy, sour, delicious apples right off the tree are spectacular. And we have learned the hard way that you can buy too many apples and then they start to go mealy in the fridge after time and they become like, well, dare I say it, grocery store apples really quickly. So buying apples in small quantities and consuming them right off the trees, essentially, it's just a fabulous thing. I have an apple about every day in the afternoon and it's just 
Ugh, it's a true pleasure of living in New England is having great apples. Any particular apple you like? Um, I tend to like the old school apples like the russets, the Winthrop Greenings, the Rhode Island Greenings, the what, Cox's Orange Pippins. The Cox's Orange Pippins, it's so funny. That's a very rare apple, and it's a it very, is. it's a British apple. It's a very rare apple here in the United yeah. States. It's common in Britain, and there's a there's an orchard near us, and they have two Cox's Orange Pippin trees. So you can't get many, but I got a small bag from them. And we had a British friend who was over for dinner a couple of weeks ago. And we were talking about apples. And she's like, oh, how much I miss Cox's Orange Pippins from back home. And I said, I just bought some. And the look on her face it was, was. The look on her face was like, what? do you mean you what? bought some? I said, there's an orchard about 12 miles north of us. And she lives right near us. I said, then they have two trees. So I sent her home with a bag of Cox's orange pippins. There you go. Really great apples off trees are hard to beat. You know, it's like it's like when you live in Central Texas and you eat peaches mm-hmm. off Central Texas peaches trees. It's impossible then to even look at a peach the rest of the year because the peaches are so fantastic and they're so delicious. I I know there are other places like Georgia that grow great peaches, but I just know it from my Texas childhood and heritage. And Texas peaches are just amazing when they're ripe, and then it just unfits you for peaches for the rest. You just don't even want to look at peaches the rest of the year. It's like pizza from New York only. <laughs> and that's fighting words, I know. Man, <laughs> that is, I can think of 800,000 Italians who are about to rise up and kill no, you. No, but New York's the only place you could buy a slice. And, and the word a slice means pizza in New York. If you said, what'd you have for lunch, a slice? We all know what you meant. Uh, well, okay, anyway, um, excuse us, Naples, and excuse <laughs> us, Rome, and excuse us, places where pizza is an art. Bruce thinks New York is the best. Okay, so that's our podcast for this week. Thanks for joining in. We thought we'd give you a behind-the-scenes look at our photo shoots, cooking tips, all kinds of fun, as we always do. Thanks for being on this journey with us. We would really appreciate a rating or a like for the podcast. That would be spectacular. Check us out on any social media media feed twitter instagram facebook or now tiktok in fact yes there is a cooking with bruce and mark channel now on tiktok it did happen even though i said it never would it did happen check us out there and we'll see you back here next week at cooking with bruce and mark